This morning, we are again going to be in Habakkuk. And the key verse for today is Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Really, actually, just the second half of verse 4. Where God tells Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. And there are two important ideas that I want to bring out of that verse that I'm going to spend the bulk of my time talking about today. And I want to see if you can pick them up by the way that I say this. So, so let me try this. The righteous will live by faith. And the righteous will live by faith. Both of those ideas are critically important. That faith is not just something you have in a moment, but that it begins a lifetime of living in faith. And yet you can't live in faith unless you receive faith. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about both of those ideas, which are here in Habakkuk and are quoted two different places in the New Testament. And if you know Romans, if you love Paul's writings, you might know already Romans chapter 1, which, which DRC read a little while ago, ends in that great quote from this book, from Habakkuk, that the righteous live by faith. And the righteous will live by faith is the backbone of Paul's theology of justification by faith. And at the same time, it's not only the backbone of his theology, it's also the muscle that enables the body of Christ to live out the mission of the church. And the second time this verse is quoted in the New Testament is in Hebrews chapter 10, right before Hebrews 11, the famous hall of faith, where the writer of Hebrews again and again shows how people lived in faith and did incredible things. This verse is so foundational that we need to carry it with us through our entire lives. And my prayer for this morning is that as we leave here, we will be motivated to testify in the midst of suffering to God's saving work. That we would testify in the midst of suffering to God's saving work. And this morning, we're going to see three things. If you have a bulletin, you've got my outline in front of you. We're going to look at God's reply to Habakkuk, and we're going to see his instructions for believers, number one, the specific hope that he offered, number two, and the peril of the wicked. And all of those tie into the idea that we need to testify in the midst of suffering because we are testifying to God's saving grace that he enables us to live by faith, and yet we do that in the midst of the wicked prospering. So the two ideas are tied together because the promise is something that we believe before we receive it. And so it calls for a life of faith, knowing that we serve a good and a just God as we wait patiently for him to do what he says he's going to do. In this series in Habakkuk, I've mentioned some really horrific things. I've talked about the London bombings. I've talked about uh, just the, the suffering that humanity has endured, the suffering in Habakkuk's own day as Babylon was going to come and conquer the city of Jerusalem and march all of the captives off 900 miles away to Babylon, and the, the suffering of the people that endured that violence. This morning, I want to remind you of some recent history that actually reached around the world and touched this church. If you remember in the 90s, the Rwandan genocide 
Somewhere between 500,000 and a million people were murdered because of their ethnic identity, and that sparked a war where they retaliated and continued to try and win win control of the country of Rwanda. And it not only tore Rwanda apart, it caused thousands and thousands of refugees to flee into the Congo where they set up refugee camps where refugees in the thousands died because of unsanitary conditions and disease. It was a humanitarian crisis of global scope. And I want to remind you of it today because in the face of crises like that, in the face of what ISIS is currently doing to believers in places like Iraq, do we have the foundation to say that there actually is hope to suffering people? Can I look a refugee in the eye and say, I've heard what you've been through, but Jesus Christ offers hope. I believe the only basis that we have to do that is found in a book like Habakkuk where a man of God lived through this kind of suffering and urged people that, yes, the righteous will live by faith. So let's look at this morning God's reply to Habakkuk. And we're going to start out in verses 2 and 3, and then I'm going to take just verse 2 for a moment. We're in Habakkuk chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible this morning, grab the one that should be under the seat in front of you. If it's not right in front of you, check the row. There will be Bibles distributed throughout here, and you can turn to page 662. It would be good to see this in the text. Page 662, you can follow along with me. And you guys have a, a NIV that's out there. I'm, I'm reading from the ESV here. Um, when I became the pastor here, I bought an NIV in hopes that it would match all the pew Bibles, and it actually doesn't. So I apologize. There will be slight differences between what I'm reading and what you're reading. It's the Word of God. Translation is an art, and it's not one that we've completely mastered even today. So bear with me. We're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 2. And if you follow along with me, I promise we'll all see the same things. It just might be slightly out of order. So starting in verse 2, God replies to Habakkuk. And remember, Habakkuk is in the midst of this conversation with God where he calls out to God in distress. God answers him, and he is in more distress. And then he calls out to God a second time and says, Lord, how can this be? And today we are going to hear God's answer to that second cry of distress. God says in verse 2 of chapter 2, And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it on plain tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. There are two key ideas here. The first is that we need to spread the word and we need to await the fulfillment. Spread the word and await the fulfillment. And you can see in verse 2 how Habakkuk is instructed to spread the word. He's to write the vision to make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. And there are a couple things that we should notice in this verse. The first is that God tells him to write it on tablets. If you read Ezekiel and Jeremiah, when God tells them to write things down, he's always talking about scrolls. That was the most common, uh, the most common material to be written on in their day. And like our paper, it's sort of temporary. It'll last for a while, but scrolls are not meant to be preserved. When he tells Habakkuk, write this on tablets, this is a message that should be preserved. It's not just for Habakkuk and Habakkuk's people in his time. It's for all times. It's for me today. It's for you today. 
And so Habakkuk says, write this down. And don't just write it down, but write it on tablets so that he who runs may read it. I don't know if you've ever tried to, to maybe exercise and read a book at the same time. It doesn't work. So he's saying, write this message large. Make it possible to run and read it. And remember, Habakkuk is in a city that's about to be attacked. They're preparing for an invasion. They're ready for war. And so the, the job of a herald is to go around and make people aware of critical, potentially life-saving information. And that's the image that this has here, that God has given Habakkuk a message that everyone needs. And so the impetus is spread the word and await its fulfillment. You ever heard the expression, hurry up and wait? That's the idea that's right here. And there are a couple things that I want to stress from verse 3, where God says to Habakkuk to await the fulfillment. Let's read verse 3 again. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. In verse 3, you find the balance between confidence that God will do what he says and patience to know that his time is not our time. God says that the vision awaits its appointed time and it may seem slow. But although it may seem slow, it's no less certain. God urges Habakkuk and the faithful to wait and says that the prophecy actually hastens to an end. It hurries towards the exact time that God has appointed for it. It will not be early and it will not be late. And I'd urge you today, remember the words that describe Jesus first coming to earth, that at the fullness of time, it took place. That Israel had waited for hundreds of years, hearing the message of the prophets that the Messiah would come, and that it didn't come one second early or one second late, but at the fullness of time, when God said, now Jesus was born. And as we await the return of Jesus Christ, it's been 2,000 years since he was on this earth, and it seems like a long time. And yet, he's not late, and he's not early, At the appointed time, at the exact time, he will return. And I want to urge you, that's one takeaway from this passage that we need today, that as we hear the word of God, that we trust it, and that we know that if it seems like a long time, and as you, in your relationship with God, call out to him and ask ask him to do things for you in prayer, that you know that he may not send you an instant answer, but that he hears you, And that in the midst of your distress, you can trust him. And the answer to your prayers will come at the perfect time that he knows is best. So the the fulfillment is on the way. Spread the word and be patient as it unfolds. For this week, I want to focus on the fact that God is giving Habakkuk hope in the midst of something really frightening. This passage contains, as as I close it up today, a little bit of a warning for the Babylonians that God's justice and judgment is going to come on them. Habakkuk has been horrified that God would use the Babylonians in any capacity. And I talked a little bit last week about some of their cruelty and the things that they did in their conquest. 
So God tells Habakkuk in today's passage that there is hope in horror and there is an end for wickedness, both in Judah and in Babylon. And today's message focuses on that hope. While we wait for God to set wrongs right, we need to look at the hope of the righteous. And that's the second point that I want to stress this morning, the hope of the righteous. Let's go ahead and look at verses 4. Really, just verse 4 right now. Habakkuk writes, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. I'm going to come back to the first half of that verse in a second. Right now, I want to focus on this promise that the righteous will live by faith. The righteous are not perfect people. If you look at the Old Testament, God's sacrificial system is given to restore fellowship for people who are already among God's chosen. And so as they sinned, they made sacrifices to restore that broken fellowship. If you read the Old Testament, you become keenly aware that there are no perfect heroes. Even the people that we revere as the legends of faith, and we're going to see some of them described in Hebrews 11, have really awful flaws. Moments of weakness, moments of doubt, moments of sin. And so as God says, the righteous will live by faith, the righteous are the people who trust God's promises. That should give you and me some hope and encouragement that we can be part of this group, that our righteousness doesn't depend on us being good people, but our righteousness depends on us trusting in the promises of God. And he goes on to say that the righteous will live by faith. And I want to spend some time this morning talking about the two aspects that I mentioned at the beginning of this message, that the righteous will live and that they live by faith. And I want to liken it to this. I don't know if you've ever tried to start a fire with flint. When I, when I was probably 11 or 12 years old, I, I had a survival knife that in the handle had a little piece of flint. And you could use the blade to spark that flint. And supposedly you can make fire that way. I never had any success with it. I enjoyed making sparks a lot, but I never got anything lit. You know, you had to go get the the propane torch to do that. What I want to use that image in your mind, get that image in your mind of a spark setting something ablaze, is that the righteous will live by faith is like a spark. That God gives you that spark of faith and you become alive. And yet faith is more than just an initial spark. It's a flame that will burn in your soul for your entire life as you live the life of faith that God gives you. And that this verse, the righteous will live by faith, has both the the spark and the flame. That the spark is the faith that you come into a relationship with God because of this faith and that you live your entire life burning with that faith. I want to illustrate both of those this morning in the New Testament passages that quote Habakkuk. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Romans, the passage that DRC read earlier today, Romans chapter 1. I'm not going to read the whole thing again. I I wanted DRC to read that because it describes in detail how God has worked through all of history and that the gospel, pick it up in verse 16, The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now think about this verse for a moment. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What is he talking about? The righteousness of God being revealed. There are a couple ideas here, but one that I don't want to miss is Habakkuk has been asking, how is God righteous when he allows wickedness to prosper? And the answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The answer to that question is God will punish evil. He will punish wickedness. And he pours out all of his wrath on Jesus Christ, not only for you and for me, but for the entire world is what John says in the book of First John. That Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And so God is righteous because he cannot look at evil. He will not look at evil. He punishes evil in the death of his son. That is why a holy God can allow evil to exist for a time and even use it for his purposes. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus took his wrath for us. Not only that, Paul says, from faith, as though the faith of the Old Testament believers, from faith, for faith. From a position of believing God's promises to a position of seeing God's promises fulfilled. We're going to see that again in Hebrews in just a few moments as we recognize that the people that received the promises of God did not know what God was going to do. And they had to trust the Lord without a full picture, without complete information. And yet we know what God has done in Jesus Christ. We know better than they do how God is faithful. And we should have even more hope because we know what he did in Jesus Christ. And so the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, from the faith of those people like Habakkuk, for faith, for our faith today. And sometimes people will say, as you read through Romans, it's, it's clear that this is for you and me. This is for individuals. That we are forgiven for our sins. 623, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And you think of verses like Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the idea that the righteous will live by faith, faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus has died for you. There are people who will say that Paul looked at Habakkuk and kind of took that verse and gave it a different meaning. Because individual faith seems just a little bit different than what Habakkuk is asking God for. Habakkuk isn't asking God to save his soul. He's asking God for protection from the Babylonians. And yet, notice this. We're not, I, don't, I don't have time to read the entire book of Romans. Do that on your own. Do that this week if you want to. Notice this, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul moves straight from the gospel of God that shows God's righteousness into the wrath of God being poured out on sinners. And that's exactly what Habakkuk does. The context is exactly the same. Habakkuk goes from saying the righteous will live by faith to God will judge the Babylonians. And so our righteous faith enables us to live in the time that God has placed us, no matter what's going on around us, whether it's something global or something personal, that the righteous will live by faith. And we trust that our good God 
in his time, will deal with the things that are beyond our control. And so I want to urge you this morning, remember the faith that you placed in Jesus Christ. That's how you become part of the people of God. Trust the Lord. Know that Jesus died for you. That's the spark of faith. The second half is the life of faith. And it's critical to understand that we only have this life by faith. Paul says in, in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So we have this salvation, we have this life through belief, through faith. And don't miss the rest of the book. That's foundational. And yet, the life that starts from that spark The flame that comes is a life that God calls us to live, in the words of John Newton, through many dangers, toils, and snares. And there are times when we're tempted to turn back. And the writer of Hebrews quotes this same verse from Habakkuk to say, do not turn back. Continue to live the life of faith. And I wish that I had time to read more of it, but I actually want to pick it up in verse 35 of Hebrews chapter 10. If you have your Bible, turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 35. The writer says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, chapter 11, you may be familiar with, maybe not. We're going to talk about it for just a minute here. Chapter 11 describes the life of those who faced challenges and remained faithful. The faith that you receive is not just to save your soul. It's to believe the promises of God and live consistently with that belief. And Hebrews chapter 10 emphasizes the flip side of that coin. That the faith that gives you life is the faith that you then live by. And you can read in chapter 11 about the stories of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham Men who believed God and obeyed him in faith. Abel offered sacrifices. Enoch walked with God and Noah built an ark. Abraham sacrificed his son Isaac, not knowing that God was going to stay his hand and provide a lamb. He obeyed God, not knowing what God would do. And verse 13 has this really strangely encouraging statement. Verse 13 of chapter 11, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Some of the Old Testament heroes of our faith never saw what God promised them. They died before the promise was revealed. And yet, they stand as pillars, as examples for us who may feel like God doesn't answer our prayers in our time. 
that we need to continue and press on in faith. In other words, are are you discouraged that you won't ever get what you're praying for? I've got some bad news. You might not get what you're praying for. You might be like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham. They looked forward to a heavenly country. Learn from them. Be like them. Trust that God is good and that he will make good on his promises. The writer goes on to list Jacob and Joseph and Moses, those who crossed through the Red Sea. He just throws in the entire nation of Israel, all who crossed the Red Sea, conquered Jericho, Rahab the prostitute, Gideon, Barak, Samson, David, Samuel, the prophets. And I can't summarize the rest of the chapter because I, I, I feel like I need to read it. This is one of the most incredible passages of Scripture. Verse 33 of chapter 11 reads, Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all of these people who anticipated Jesus Christ, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the life of faith. It's not just a prayer that you pray. It says wherever God puts you, you will face obstacles. You will face trials and temptations. The writer of Hebrews is saying, don't turn back. Be inspired by some of the things that these people did. I I love the, the part that says, through faith conquered kingdoms and enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. These are victories. There are victories that God will give us as we obey him in faith. We should fight for those victories. And yet, he goes on to describe what the world would call all kinds of defeat. And the writer doesn't say, these people didn't have strong enough faith. He says, they look forward to the promise just like the people who had victory. They are an inspiration of faithfulness right to the end. Be inspired by them. Know that we are called to live a life of faith. This morning, I want to bring this very personally, very very close to home at this church. Because I started out talking about the genocide that Rwanda saw and the wars that spilled over into Congo as a result of that. Some of you will know this story better than I do because I still haven't met these people firsthand. But Bill and Ann Clemmer 
both illustrate receiving that spark of faith and then living a life of active service to the Lord. So I'll tell you a little bit about Bill's story and and pray that if I mess anything up, they'll be very forgiving. (laughs) Bill, I believe right out of high school, because I, I don't think that he had any college experience at this point, went into the Peace Corps. Wasn't a Christian, didn't know the Lord, and out of boredom serving in the Peace Corps, read the New Testament. And he met Jesus in the pages of the New Testament. And it changed his life. His partner in the Peace Corps went home. And so he prayed and asked God, God, send me another believer to encourage me. And instead of saying yes to that prayer, God sent him Anne, who was not a believer yet. Anne became a believer in part through Bill's witness. And together, they had more than the spark of faith. They decided they wanted to pursue marriage. And so they got married and said, let's serve the Lord together on the mission field. So they finished their term in the Peace Corps, came home, and applied to several different missions organizations. And all of them turned them down. They said, you don't have any training or qualifications that that could be useful on the mission field. You need schooling. You need something. But now is not the right time for you to go to the mission field. And so, not to be daunted by anything like a a little little no, uh, Bill went to med school. He finished med school, and they went the same round and, and applied all over again to all these places. I'm a doctor. got skills. And they all turned him down a second time because as a doctor, he now had school debt. As a missionary, you are not going to be a wealthy man. You can't pay this back. So now is not the right time for you to go to the mission field. And so they opened a small clinic and in two years paid off his medical school debt. I, I heard this story from Pastor Ed. Pastor Ed smiled a little and said they, they lived frugally. From there, they've been in ministry for 25 years, which puts that at 1992. From there, they went to Congo. Now, war broke out in Rwanda in 1994. So they had two years of service in Congo before that war, just ministering to people as medical missionaries. And then the world got flipped upside down. They saw thousands of refugees. Remember that in this conflict, rape was used as a weapon of war. And that's part of why HIV and AIDS spread all over Africa so quickly. Because as these conflicts flared up, men abused women. And so as medical missionaries, they're treating women who are victims of sexual abuse and they are treating people who are infected with AIDS and HIV. And as medical missionaries, they are a threat to the people waging war. So they are in constant danger. Serving the Lord because they believe the Lord has placed them there. It got so bad that Bill sent Anne home with the kids. They left the country. For a year, they had no contact. I don't like to be out of contact with my wife for more than four hours. I call her at lunch. I can't imagine not knowing what her and my kids are doing for an entire year. And yet these people, they have this faith and they're living by faith, believing that God has called them and equipped them and they are serving the Lord to people that desperately need it. I know this story because they came after that year They came back to the States, began to tell how God had used them, what they'd been through. 
And, and your pastor of 14 years, Pastor Ed, heard their story. And he said that as they were telling it, with tears in their eyes, they said, and we're flying back tomorrow because our work's not done. That after all they'd been through, they went back for more service to tell the good news of Jesus Christ and to meet needs. Today, they're serving in South Sudan, another country that also five years ago got independence and then after independence immediately went into civil war. They're still dealing with the same types of issues. They're still serving. Let me urge you to pray for them. And let me urge you to be inspired by them. Pastor Ed said as he heard their story, he realized his plan was actually to retire, not from this church, but from the church he was serving at before he came here. And he said, God, how can I say no to moving in Michigan as these people are flying around the world and serving in a war zone? And so it's almost laughable, but in a real way, this church had its pastor because of the Rwandan genocide. This church has been blessed by the hand of God calling up people. God is not ignoring those things. He's sending people like the Clemmers. And he's sending people here to Holly like Pastor Ed who faithfully served here for 14 years. And I believe that you and I have a part to play in what God is doing today and right now. And as I close this message, I want to urge you Be open to what God is doing in your life. No one here, and I said this in the first service, I said no one here is too old to serve the Lord. There's no expiration date on your usefulness. I know of great stories of missionaries leaving for the first time in their 60s, and even I know one guy just this past two weeks went to Haiti for the first time, and the man is 81 years old. You are never too old to serve the Lord. Be open to whatever he calls you to. Live a life consistent with the faith that you say you have. But I began this message by saying, my prayer for all of us is that we would be ready to tell of God's goodness in the midst of suffering. Be prepared to tell of God's goodness, the promises you have received while your world is falling apart. Remember that that command that God said, Write this down. And I want to urge you, each of you, to begin today to think through how you are going to tell your kids, your neighbors, your coworkers, the people around you, are you ready to tell them of the hope that you have right now? Are you ready, like God said to Habakkuk, to preserve what God has done in your life and to tell that message and to live a life that's consistent with it? And I want to give you one application for how you can begin to do that very specifically. This Bible is not the Bible that I usually preach out of. It's really large. And if you look at it, it has fat margins. And I I write in there, and I I don't use this as an example just to say, you know, this is how holy I am or how spiritual I am. The reason I'm doing this is because I was challenged by an article a few years ago to take 10 years and to do this to a Bible, to underline verses that, God used to speak to my heart and to write in the margins things that I understood from the scriptures. A little bit of my life story, a little bit of insight into what they say and mean. And the goal of this is to give it to Isaac. 
I want Isaac to know not just that dad's a Christian, but that dad lived a life of faith. That my Christian life didn't start and end the day as an eight-year-old that I trusted Jesus, but that God led me through many different things. Some of them mountaintops and victories, some of them very low and dark places. And I want a record of that. And I want to urge each of you, you don't have to annotate a Bible, but you can start underlining it. What's a verse that God used to lead you to Jesus Christ? What's a verse that stands out as an encouragement to you? What's a verse that you can pass down to your kids? What's a verse that you look to when you want to know what God wants you to do with your life? I want to urge you, be ready. Be ready to share the hope that you have if you are living a life of faith. Write it down. Be ready. And as I close this message, I want to say, that each of us are called. We're not all going to be the clemmers. God doesn't need us or want us to do that. But he does want us to live a life of faith. And so I want to encourage you, recognize he's in control. Learn to pray. Learn to give sacrificially. Learn to share your faith. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that you are great and you are good. We praise you for Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. We commit again to living in faith. We ask your forgiveness when we are motivated by fear or attempts to protect ourselves and we don't follow you the way we should. Lord, we entrust ourselves completely to you. In Jesus' name, amen.